Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Andy Clark. Andy is a British philosopher and a professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex. He's written some great books on humans as cyborgs, extended cognition, and most recently, Surfing Uncertainty, which is on this thing called predictive processing. Uh, Andy, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Hi, Reese. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to kind of dive in. And as Andy and I were chatting about this beforehand, the kind of overview of the conversation is that we're just going to like, you know, I'm writing this book on like information and how information flows. And Andy's been thinking a ton about how the brain works and how the mind works and how, you know, humans interact with technology. And so um, it's just going to be like a co-exploratory conversation around like trying to, you know, pick Andy's brain about, um, you know, his his you know body of work there. Um, and so to kind of dive in with that specifically, Andy, how do you think about you know, the through line that ties all of your work together. Yeah, I was, I was pondering that uh, earlier a little bit. And I think that the, the thing that ties it all together is a kind of conviction that embodiment really matters, that it's kind of the human body that sort of is the, the linchpin in some way for the human mind. And I think that that sort of a, an interest in what body and action do for minds like ours has run through all my work from sort of rejecting good old-fashioned artificial intelligence way back in, you know, way back in the <clears throat> early 80s or something <laughs> like that, um, through to an interest in artificial neural networks, robotics, the extended mind, and most recently, predictive processing, that I think is a, a lovely account of how perception and action come together for embodied beings. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of an interesting take, too, because it's like, when we think of our minds, we mostly think of them as this special thing that exists in the brain. It's like, oh, and then your body is just kind of like the meat suit that holds the the mind. But you're saying, no, no, no. Um, it actually, the embodiment really matters. So could we kind of dive in on that for a second? And could you tell us a little bit more about like, you know, embodied cognition and 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 what is it and uh, and how it actually, why we should think of ourselves as having embodied or 4E cognition instead of just it existing in the brain? Yeah, I mean, if you think about think about just about anything that we do, even so, let, let's take something um, something quite sort of cognitive to start with, like thinking <laughs> through a maths problem. If you're thinking through a maths problem, then one thing that you'll do if you're trying to explain what you're thinking or what you're what you're the reason you're going through to someone else is what I'm actually doing here, which is waving my hands around a little bit as I go along. Um, it turns out in a large and interesting body of work by Susan Golden Meadow, that the physical gestures that we make while we're explaining ourselves actually seem to be helping our reasoning along. 
So if you actually get kids to, to sit on their hands while they try to explain how they solved a maths problem, they're much, much worse than they would be otherwise. And it's not really just a matter of communication, because even people that are congenitally blind will gesture as they talk to other congenitally blind people. And, you know, you'll probably gesture as you talk on the phone. So it's, there's that kind of thought that that loop through the body is actually doing some kind of cognitive work. And we see, of course, that kind of sharing of the load between the brain and the body. You see it in other cases very dramatically, like in the case of walking. So if you look at a, an example that I like to, to use is that the big sort of lumbering robot, the Asimo, Honda's Asimo robots. If you Google those up, you'll see these big state-of-the-art um, pieces of technology that can do some decent walking around. You know, they can even get upstairs, but they're very, very energy inefficient. They use a huge amount of energy to do what they do, and that's because they have to control each and every one of their bodily joints uh, in order to get things done. So the body is just like a problem for them to solve, and they use a lot of power and energy to do it. Whereas for us, biological walkers, the brain and the body co-evolved so that our brain is very neatly sort of giving minimal commands to a body that actually does a lot of the work. So uh, there are things called passive dynamic walkers that you can see online as well. They're like, they started off as little toys in the Victorian era. And they were just things where you put them on a little incline and they would walk down that slope with a fairly biological-looking motion. Um, it turns out that, you know, that's because of the way the arms are weighted and the way that the, the legs are held together and you might have little sort of, um, you might have rounded heels, if you like, and weights on the end of the arms. And these kinds of uh, sort of gross bodily dynamics really simplify the task for the brain. So I think it's, you know, it's not as if we've got a body and our brain is kind of parachuted into that body to try and control it. The, the two systems co-evolved, and that's why I think they are so adept at spreading the load. Yeah, Even I if like you do things like counting on our fingers, you know, I mean. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, I think that there's a, um, as you as you talk about, it's like, yeah. you know, thinking about it as sharing the load, I really like that framing, and then also the co-evolutionary framing where it's like, hey, it's obvious. It's, yeah, we didn't just... We didn't have, it's, yeah, brains were not just put on a random body, you yeah. know, like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. It's like, no, this happened over the course of tens of millions of years of brains and bodies co-evolving with each other before, you know, even monkeys and all these things. And so I think that, I like that, that kind of framing. Do you think, I mean, and I think a bonus piece of it, there's kind of the embodiment framing. And there's also this, like, the 4E model of cognition, which has embodied and then enacted, expressed and extended, where we have, like, it's not just like us and our bodies, but it's also like the whole system around us of technology and other things. Could you tell us how, like, how are you thinking about the like full system of cognition there? Yeah. So there's a 4E cognition is a sort of, it's a, it's a kind of huge area in its own right. There's a kind of, there's a, a thousand page manual called something like the, um, the Oxford in the Oxford handbook of 4E cognition. So it's not going to be a very quick answer. Uh, <laughs> you know, what are the differences between the E's in 4E cognition? But, um, but you know, I think the bedrock E is the embodied E that to me, that's the one that holds it all together. And that's just what we've already been talking about. The importance of the body for what we would perhaps think of as disembodied cognition. The role of the body in reasoning, in um, in in yeah, in thinking and formulating ideas. Um, 
Then there's the kind of weakest of the ease, which is embedded. And so embedded cognition is just the idea that you don't really need to change your science of the mind. What you do is you just take the body and the world very seriously. And that's a sort of, it's a rather mild position that, that is sometimes defended in this area because you get to sort of keep your traditional perspective on the world but you also get to take on board some of these cool things about sort of um, you know passive dynamic walking and the stuff that I've been talking about there. Um, but then there are more radical folk like the inactive and extended folk. That's the other two traditionalies, at least inactive and extended. Um, inactivism is kind of the idea that um, meaningfulness comes about through action. That um, we make sense of the world by acting in the world and that we shouldn't think of cognition as something separate from action. So uh, there's a so-called sensory motor inactivist and their typical picture is think of a blind person feeling their way around with a cane. They're constantly probing the world with action and that's what the perception itself consists in. And they think, okay, all perception is like that. When you saccade around the scene with your eyes, um, it's all active exploration, and that's what really makes perception what it is. Um, there's another variant of inactivism. I told you this would be a long answer. There's another <laughs> variant of inactivism that um, is kind of about um, meaningfulness, the origin of meaningfulness, and it's the idea that, um, that we do not encounter a pre-given world, but we bring a meaningful world into being by our actions. And uh, the example of that that I've always liked is just imagine that there's a new university campus, there are no paths already laid down, it's just covered in grass, and you let everyone loose and they walk around and they lay down paths according to where they want to go. And then other people will follow those paths. So they kind of, they structured the world in a meaningful way by their actions and then they continue to explore the world that they've structured like that. There's a lot more going on in inactivism than that, and it's metaphysically quite challenging at times. And then there's one dangling E, which is the extended E, um, and that's the one that I've been most associated with. Um, kind of the E comes from sort of the extended mind story that I kind of um, threw out there with David Chalmers back in 1998, I think it was. And this is the idea. It's the opposite of embedded in some sense. It's the idea that the environment can be so important that it should actually sometimes be counted as part of the mechanism of mind. So when I was talking about the role of gesture there, you know, say, look, the body isn't just the environment in which the thinking happens. It's actually part of the active body is part and parcel of the thinking. And extended mind theorists think that that doesn't stop at the body, that when I'm doing stuff like um, scribbling while I think through a maths problem or, a, or any kind of problem or sketching, I'm an artist or a designer, that those loops through the external media can actually be part of the thinking mechanism. Um, so that's so the extended mind is kind of the more metaphysically challenging position that says your mind doesn't even live solely inside your brain. There's, there's more to it than that held together with these sensory motor loops. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you for the, you know, you know, we got the idea of the book, a thousand pages, you know, like two minutes, boom, done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think 
it just, as I noted before, just challenges our natural idea of like how the brain, how we do thinking, you know, we're so kind of like egotistical and like, you know, uh, you know, from self-focused, you know, and that these yeah. things that kind of push us, I'm reminded of some like, do you see any overlap with like the, the like Buddhist mindsets around like having no self or like the self, you know, consciousness just kind of like appearing or whatever. And like, is, does that connect to you for yeah. to the like four e Yeah, no, it really does. I mean, it, 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 it seems to keep coming up in the different bits of, of this landscape. So it kind of comes up in the, in the sort of cyborg mind part of the landscape as the idea that there's no sort of concrete self or selfhood. Um, it's very much negotiable. You know, we could exist in all kinds of physical forms. You know, I can control all kinds of complicated machinery with the right sort of interfaces, and I might feel myself present in those ways. And at times, if you take that far enough, you start to think the notion of the self is just some kind of construct. It's a sort of, um, it's a useful, it's a useful construct that helps me negotiate the world, but it's not something kind of pre-given. And I think that comes out of the predictive coding or predictive processing side too, where just about everything about ourselves turns out to be some kind of um, some kind of construct that is good at in there in in that story, which I guess we'll get to in due course. It's all about minimizing prediction error as you kind of find your way through the world. So, so that sort of Buddhist picture or that kind of soft self picture. It's one that I'm very, very much attracted to. I think we make a lot of mistakes if we think of ourselves as sort of Cartesian selves that have a kind of a very firm, independent existence in here. And they kind of, they're the things I know best. I know them sort of infallibly. I think if you start in that, from that point, all kinds of bad things will happen to you as a, as a thinker and a reasoner. They might even happen to you badly in the world. Mm. What kind of bad things are you talking about? Uh, things like starting to believe in, um, in, in hard problems of consciousness and um, kind of the ineffability of qualia and subjective experience, the idea that there's a whole realm of things here that science just can't really get to grips with. Um, mm. I think a lot of that flows from the fact that the simplest self-model that we've got that enables us to successfully negotiate the world is one that kind of ascribes to ourselves all kinds of weird and wonderful properties. But we don't mm. actually have to think that it's a job of the science to show how those properties really exist. It's a job of the science to show how can we infer that those properties exist. That's interesting. That's I think I got that, but let me, let me double check there. So, so A, I mean, yeah, hearing those different kinds of E's is really interesting. I think I'm especially interested to dive in a bit on the extended one, but I think that there's a... Um, you know, thinking about, you know, this, the self and how, um, you know, this Buddhist version of the soft self, I really like that, that terminology for it. Um, and you're saying that if we have this kind of too intense, I think it's helpful, as you were saying, to think about all of the parts of ourselves as yeah, everything is a construct, you know, like we are just constantly, our mind is creating constructs and the self in and of itself is a construct. Uh, and so you're saying that if I, be if I believe the self is some kind of special thing, um, then that could be bad because then it requires us to go down these like paths where we're like, okay, if the self is special and consciousness is or whatever, then um, all then we have to like kind of determine scientific things in order to like kind of explain this thing that we've determined is special, but it's actually not special. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, you are hearing that right. Yeah, it's sort of 
you know, I don't think we need a new kind of science to understand mind and consciousness. I think we've got roughly the right kind of science. And what we need to do is understand why it is that we think that the roughly the right kind of science we've got isn't enough. And I, and I think that the and I think that we can give a good account of that from sort of predictive processing and um, embodied cognition principles that are to do with the role of minimal models in helping us get through the world. Yes. Uh, so it's a there's a kind of view like that out there as well that that, that, that you will find in in work by um, Graziano, um, and and there it's all about sort of having an attention schema, but it's very much the same kind of it's the same kind of picture that there's something here that looks more problematic than it is because by its nature we present it as something that it actually isn't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's only confusing even to me actually but but the, you know this sort of belongs in the ballpark of um there's a there's a kind of move in the consciousness debate at the moment to shift the problem a little way from the the hard problem, which is how is this ineffable experience that I'm having now, this experience of blueness and windiness and so on, how is that possible, to something like um, the question of what kind of organization, what kind of mental or, or sort of computational organization would give rise to a creature that would make reports like how is it possible that this kind of ineffable blue experience is happening to me right now? So the, the, the meta puzzle is a puzzle of how you build things that get puzzled or that appear to get puzzled. Yeah. Uh, and some That's of the often Dan Dennett kind of think if you solve that puzzle, you've probably done enough. And other people like Dave Chalmers, uh, who's my collaborator, of course, on the Extended Mind story, thinks that that's not enough. Mm -hmm. I love, yeah, I recently learned I, this like meta problem of, of, or meta hard problem of consciousness, or hard problem of meta consciousness or whatever. It's just like, yeah, it's this, and I love that reframe, which is, um, hey, we think this is so ineffable and so crazy, you know, the phenomenological experience of being a human and consciousness is so crazy. It's like, wait a second, let's, instead of trying to explain that, let's try to explain why we think that, you know, um, that's weird in and of itself. So I like that. That's interesting. Do you think, let's, let's kind of um, get the full map here and the full territory here, which is to talk about predictive processing. And so, um, you know, this is in your book, Surfing Uncertainty. And I guess just for our listeners, could you give, you know, the, the again, the, it's a, it's a nice, good, long book, but could you give the quick overview of what predictive processing is? Yeah, um, or at least I'll have a crack at it. So yeah. it's the idea that what brains fundamentally are, are prediction machines. So that there's a kind of fundamental thought is that um, instead of seeing the brain as in the business of, if you like, trying to register how the world is, on the basis of incoming information. It's trying to predict how the world is, and every time it gets a prediction wrong, prediction error signals result, and it gets to run kind of routines to try and update, and slowly you bring a structured world into view by finding the best way to get rid of prediction error as you attempt to predict the stream of sensory information that's coming at you. So that's a bedrock picture. I mean, there's um. To make it a bit more intuitive, I like to use something like sine wave speech. I don't know if you've come across that, but I brought a little demo because it's um, it's my favorite for doing this. If I can find it on my desktop, and it's only a sound demo, so I've only just got to 
launch it. So what sine wave speech is, is it's a, a version of speech where a lot of the ordinary signal has been stripped away. And so what's left is something that sounds a little bit sort of um, science fiction-y, like beeps and boops. Like, woo, woo, woo. So what I'm going to play you is a fragment of sine wave speech. You'll then hear the original sentence, and then the, the sine wave speech will replay. Cool. And what you should be listening for, and what you'll hear very clearly, I think, is a major difference in your experience, which is the difference that being able to properly predict the flow of that sound signal makes once you've um, got on top of the original. So I'll just play it and see what you think. If it works. Nearly there. Okay. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. <laughs> yeah. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. One more. He was sitting at his desk in his office. He was sitting at his desk in his office. He was sitting at his desk in his office. So, you know, the the kind of use of that, it's a little bit like those pictures of Dalmatian dogs hidden away in the, you know, in the in the noisy background. The thing is, when you've got a good um, prediction in place, then a, a lot of structure kind of comes into view. And in this case, meaning as well comes into view. Now, of course, we're all already good predictors using um, our own sort of natural language and so this demo is piggybacking obviously on that just like the dalmatian dog demo is piggybacking on what you can already know how to see but the kind of idea is that learning to perceive the world was a process a bit like that it was a process where you're hit with all this stuff it's kind of noisy and what the brain has to learn to do is get a high level grip on the sort of patterns that might matter in that use that to try to predict the shape of the signal and as that happens you separate out the signal from the noise and the kind of meaningful salient bits of structure get to emerge um, and that's the predictive process in picture really for at least for perception um, the yeah. good thing about the overall picture is it's got a similar story to tell about action but i imagine that we'll get to that in due course the um, yeah let's let's get, yeah. get to that thing because i think but thank you for that demo i mean i've seen yes yeah, so, so for our listeners yeah the high level view is that there's this we have our top down models of the world these kind of like bayesian oh i predict this i predict that what's going to happen today it's like probably the world is going to be roughly the same as it was yesterday. Um, and then when we get this bottom-up sensory data, it's kind of put into those models and those models are actively like predicting all the time. And then when the bottom-up sensory data is different than the um, the model that we predicted, then it's like, oh no, this is bad. This is, you know, in your book, which you call surprisal or this like prediction error where it's like, and we're just constantly trying to create good models of the world to minimize the surprisal or to minimize the prediction error. Um, and I think that both those examples do a great job of it, which is like, once we have, when you hear those first little bits of weird alien speech, it's like, I don't understand this at all. But then once we have a model, we're like, oh, I know what is going to come out next. It's going to be this this thing. Then we can hear it correctly. And similarly with the, the viewing things, whether it's the Dalmatian picture or the cow picture, these weird kind of like Rorschach 
blot tests, um, for those of you who haven't seen them, I'll put some in the show notes, where you look at it initially, you're like, I have no idea what this is. It's just like a bunch of black and white stuff on a page. And then once you're told, oh, this is a Dalmatian or, oh, this is a cow, then you see it immediately. Um, so that makes sense. Um, and well, I guess one one question that I have for you is, what does this, why does it matter? You know, like, because, like okay, so our world is full, our, our mind works through these like, you know, Bayesian prediction models. Yeah. Who cares? You know, like, so what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a, a question you can always ask of any uh, sort of grand high level theory about the mind as well. You know, did we really need that? You know, we've got neuroscience, you've got psychiatry, what more do you need? That's kind of, <laughs> that's all you need to sort of get on top of your own mind. But this is your whole life, maybe as a as a your work, where people are like, "Who cares, Andy?" And you're like, "No, it's important." I know. Well, it's it's, uh, and also I ask myself the same question quite often. So it's you know, it's not just when you go down the pub. Um, but actually, I think it does matter because actually having the right picture of the nature of our relationship to what we kind of um, unthinkingly think of as reality. Is quite important, I think. It's, you know, seeing the distance that separates us from whatever structure is really out there in the world, it, I think is hugely important. It, it sort of it pushes back against the idea that there's simply a world out there and the job of the brain is to get it right and therefore we should probably all end up with the same picture of the world. If you think that worlds come into view in part because of the expectations that you have. And it's clear that everyone has a very different history and they know about very different things. Then it becomes immediately clear that they're going to perceptually experience different worlds. And that seems to me quite important. Um, it may, may be politically significant. Um, there's work by Lisa Feldman, Barrett and colleagues um, talking about how this could be important in, in rather... Um, rather difficult uh, situations like police officers encountering um, suspects uh, in, a, in a dark alleyway and perhaps mistaking um, a handheld phone for uh, a drawn weapon. You know, the, the, the predictive process in account of what could happen there is that your own bodily self-predictions are kind of getting into the frame because we're not just trying to predict the signals coming from the external world, we're trying to predict the ones coming from our body. And if your body is in a highly anxious, sort of frightened, scared state, the Bayesian brain just takes that as more, tries to take that as more evidence for what might be out there. And, and you can see how you could very easily skew things and make terrible and tragic and horrible mistakes as a result of kind of overweighting bodily evidence in a situation like that. So I think understanding how, how these pictures of the world come into view is going to be hugely important for, um, for, our, for our sort of um, flourishing as a, as a self-reflective species. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that um, it kind of uh, in some ways solidifies yeah, this idea of you know, frames on the world or lenses on the world. Uh, and what things will often call something like a bias or whatever. And it's like, it might be more powerful to instead of thinking, oh, there's like, is it, right now we have, I think, this bias framing, which is like, oh, here's this one bias over here, you know, confirmation bias. And here's this other bias over here, fundamental attribution error or whatever. And yeah. it's kind of better to say, no, 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 no. Instead of thinking of ourselves as sensory world out there, and then like, we kind of take it as input. 
think about what frames are we constantly applying to the world around us um, and how does that change our reality? And this is like the classic, like, um, you know, I, you know, right versus left, you know, red versus blue, the other side thing. It's like people have different frames on the world um, and understanding those frames and then how information both from the world and from our bodies kind of gets put into those frames is seems pretty crucial. So I, I do agree with that. Yeah. Do you think, and, and kind of to dive on that a little bit more, so and I kind of want to, you know, transition this a bit to understand your perspective on, you know, because this is kind of getting to the, the world of like how information flows. Um, and so, you know, thinking about, you know, this, this book that I'm writing, What Information Wants, and thinking about, you know, over the course of history, both, you know, uh, biological evolution, also human evolution, we have uh, information and whether it's genes that want to continue to replicate or whether it's in our current world, we have um, I would claim that these, you know, and others have claimed that these memes, you know, in the Dawkins sense, um, want to replicate from mind to mind. Um, and then we get these kind of like bigger kind of meme plexes, like religions and stuff that have powerful, like proselytizing properties and things. And I think that, but one part of this story that I'm trying to understand better is like, you know, the information that is kind of living or that's kind of moving around, how? How does you know your view on embodied cognition, or does your view on predictive processing? How do those change the kind of the ways that information flows, or kind of the homes that these memes can live in? Yeah. So, so a caution here. I'm no expert on the meme. Um, I, you know, basically, I think that there is. Um, there is a flow of information, as you say, and that some of that information becomes uh, materialized in structures that we share, um, structures in, in, in books and in films and, uh, and even sound waves in the air. And, you know, mimetics, I guess, is, is in some sense a science of those structures and what they do. And I certainly think that those structures are, are hugely important. That as we, as we kind of materialize our thoughts, we create new objects that have properties of their own. And that's a very, very, very powerful force, I think, in, in the evolution of human thought. One of the things that I think it can do that comes out of the predictive processing perspective on it is that I think it can actually help us break our own models of the world. So um, you talk about all these kinds of biases that we have, and that's and, and, and that's true. And so when I think about something, I'm sucked into the sort of uh, biases that I have. That's uh, that's the nature of, of how the inner machinery works, I think. Um, at the same time, if I create something as an external object, then other people can approach it, and I can approach it as a kind of detached object. And that, I think, gives us a chance to to break apart these models a bit rather than just always being sucked into their big sort of attractor basins. You can kind of keep them a little bit at arm's length and poke and prod them. Um, a bit like I've got a mental vision of the perfect training shoe and I keep thinking about training shoes in that way. And then I just build a big model and I walk around it and I poke and I prod it and I can learn different things and imagine different possibilities that way because I'm not getting constantly sucked back into my own sort of... Um, kind of mental attractor basins. So I think in that sense, that, that, that process is, is hugely important. Um, there's something about the flow of information in this sort of sphere that we've created that I think is also um, 
potentially dangerous in the kind of religious cases maybe that you mentioned, which is a you know prediction error minimizing brains want the simplest model that is consistent with whatever they're taking seriously. And so, you know, the goodness of a predictive model is its accuracy minus its complexity. So you're always being driven towards something simple if it will do the job. And I think a lot of the sort of more dangerous um, memes that pass around are ones that are piggybacking on that because they've got, they've got simplicity nailed. <laughs> and, um, and they're pretending at least to um, to explain an awful lot of stuff that perhaps they're not fundamentally actually getting to grips with, but the attraction of simplicity is is written pretty deep into the into the kind of Bayesian brain, if you like. So I think yeah. there are there are at least those points of contact where I think there might be something useful to say about about the kind of the, the yeah what information wants, if you like, using yeah. these tools. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that a I really like what you said about this ability to kind of produce, and this is talked about in kind of um, relational dynamics, you know, this ability to produce a, a third rail or to kind of externalize your internal state. Um, and so it's like, if, you know, uh, if you and I, Andy, are having an argument and we're like, ah, oh, blah, 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 you said this. And I'm like, no, I said this. And what we can do is we can try to produce a shared third rail where we're, we're each like co-creating to create like what actually happened there or whatever. And then once we create this thing, then we can kind of, uh, it's kind of removed from our internal selves and it's kind of um, out there in the world. And so we can kind of talk about it as this third object. And so I think thinking about our, our frames and our minds um, as these kinds of third objects and then like externalizing them for others, that could be very powerful. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you there. Um, and then, yeah, I think that you're right to say, yeah, there's an interesting difficulty here where it's like, you know, our brains are looking to minimize, you know, the prediction error or whatever. And it is you know, to minimize surprisal. And so if you have a model of the world that has, yeah, it's kind of like X is good and X and Y is bad, that can kind of you know, be like, okay, that's easy. There's less air here. Um, versus it's like, well, everybody's complicated, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't really, the brain is like, well, then what is my actual model? You know, like, what am I trying to predict? Um, so I think that that could be, that one's actually interesting. Cause I think, how do you think about creating models in a world of complexity or something like that? So I think actually this is, a, that's a point <clears throat> at which those two kind of strands come right together. That's why I think why we've got all the institutions of science, for example, and art for that matter. But, you know, think of peer review in science and all of those sort of attempts to, you know, you will turn your theory into something publicly inspectable and you will run it past a whole bunch of other people and they'll poke and prod at it. And, you know, what we found over time is that this is a way of making sure that we do justice or at least try to do some justice to, to the actual complexity of the solutions or the complexity of the, the world that we're trying to understand, as opposed to simply being sucked into the most minimal model that seems to accommodate the data points that you happen to be taking most seriously. Because <laughs> um, that's what your brain wants to do. Take a few data points seriously, find a minimal model, and sit with it. And I think what we've done is we've created all these structures that push back against that, and therefore ultimately let us do more things and think more things. Mm. 
I like that framing of like, hey, we have our natural human bias towards, you know, small, simple models and just taking a little bit of, you know, sensory data as input then. And what we need to do is create these like more meta institutions that allow us to kind of um, push back on that and to like create, to actually judge the world in its full complexity instead of what our minds want to determine its full complexity is. Um, I think, let me, let me ask another version of this question, which is, so if, there's one framing that you gave on memes, which is is true, uh, but I want to give this other one, which is that, so so you, you talked about how there's these, you know, we have these artifacts in the world and whether it is um, the in books or it can be in kind of art or whatever, and that these are kind of these mimetic pieces that um, are information kind of crystallized or something like that. And I think what I want to ask you about is like, one, so, so there's, you know, the McLuhan idea that the medium is the message. And we we have this information that's that's flowing in the world. And, and, and with like a gene as an example, it's like, okay, genes are fit for their environment. If you have an environment with no oxygen, you won't get a Cambrian explosion in, in animals and plants. But once the environment has lots of oxygen, then boom, um, genes will kind of iterate and, and learn to fit that world where they have access to a lot more energy. Similarly, like, information ideas are fit for their medium, whether it's the vocal medium with humans at the beginning or then, you know, written and printed and now the internet. And I think that one of these mediums is our brains. And how do you think about like the kinds of, you know, memes that can live in brains? Um, And I'm thinking about stuff like engrams or whatever that are just like memory stores or whatever, but is there something about predictive processing or embodied cognition that says, hey, here's the information, here are the homes that memes can have in our bodies. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's, I want to say it's something like um, anything that does multi-level reduction of prediction error. I, that, that, I love that <laughs> answer, by the way. That's like a very abstract, but tell, tell, tell me more on that. Yeah. My kind of gut feeling is that, um, that if you think about, um, think about any kind of aha moment, what's going on in those sort of aha moments where things seem to fall together? And then an idea is really kind of suddenly solidified for you. I think those are cases where you're not just, as it were, getting rid of of prediction error with respect to one of your models of the world. You're sort of getting rid of error in a way that cascades down or upwards or sideways and, and gets rid of an awful lot more than expected amounts of error. And so one of the things that's going on in this um, in this area at the moment is looking at the slope of prediction error reduction and what happens when we do better or worse at getting rid of prediction error than we expected to. So just as we have expectations about the world, predictions about the world, we have predictions about our own likely success in dealing with the world and with um, situations, I guess. So when we do better than expected at minimizing prediction error, that typically feels good. When we do worse than expected at minimizing prediction error, that typically feels bad, causes us to become anxious. And so I think that the, um, that the, the home for the most powerful kind of memes in the brain is they, 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 are just what, they, they are just what there is when more than expected amounts of prediction error are being minimized. Um, yep. Although it can be hijacked, that's the only trouble. Just like anything can be hijacked, um, these mechanisms can be hijacked too. And you know, alcohol and certain drugs are very good 
are giving us the uh, the feeling, as it were, that we are minimising more than expected amounts of prediction error, when in fact we're probably not. So sometimes when I've had a pint or two, I think, you know what, it all feels really good. I feel like I'm minimising lots of error, but then I have that little voice on my shoulder saying, yeah, but you're not, you know, you're not. <laughs> I love that. I love, um, yeah, so, the, I, so that makes sense to me. I just want to reflect it for a second. And I think it's, yeah, it makes sense that you're essentially taking, you know, the integral or, or you're saying, okay, you're saying, look, there's, um, our brain has these levels of, from a predictive processing perspective with, you know, the top down and the bottom up. And so there's, um, we want to minimize prediction error generally. And especially we want to, if we can minimize if we can make some kind of claim or have some kind of idea in our mind that minimizes the prediction error, not just for that one little set, but has reach, you know, it, it minimizes prediction error across lots of things that feels good. And, you know, maybe with something like, you know, this can happen when you have like a well-fit idea. Like I'll just share one that's on the top of my mind recently where it's like, you know, I've just been recognizing, I, I, I reheard the term networked individualism recently. Um, and I was like, oh, that explains lots of like sociological constructs on the internet these days. And so I'm just like seeing it again and again. And maybe that's like, and that's maybe a form of this minimizing prediction error where I feel like, okay, I've found something that fits in my brain that makes more of the world make sense. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly right. Yeah. So I think something that, yeah, it's sort of, it's fitting. It's literally fitting a, 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 a space that is there in virtue of persistent errors that you are now able to get rid of all of a sudden. And that's yeah. like, you know, that, that feels good. <laughs> totally. That's, that's the hilarious part about this. It's just like, it feels good. It's just like, you know, making dopamine or whatever. Um, the funny thing, yeah, I think that what you're saying too is the hijackness, both with, with drugs, but also with, you know, other, whether we want to talk about religion or we want to talk about other things that can kind of um, make it feel like, uh, it's kind of like what you were saying before, this balance versus, you know, accuracy and complexity and like it ways, things that are fit are things that can minimize the prediction, multi-level prediction error, but are actually, and, and I guess a crucial piece of this is, and they have this ability to, and something like religion also says something like, hey, both believe what is over here to be true and also that other stuff over there, like you have to kind of discount it. You have to say like, oh no, that person over there saying God isn't real or whatever, but like, let's not take that into account in our worldview. So there's kind of like this, um, uh, like a monopolistic environment there or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that sounds, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So I have a, another, like, I, you know, as I was going to put in a little, a little something there, which is just that um, I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want to make it sound as if I'm anti-drugs here. Um, drugs can be, I mean, classic psychedelics, for example, have a powerful role to play, I think. Um, and that role is illuminated quite well by working predictive processing. People like Robin Carhart Harris in London have been looking at the way that classic psychedelics might relax the grip of your high level self model, enabling you perhaps to have. Uh, the realization, the actual experience of the softness of the self, if you like, that, you know, if you have very chronic and untreatable depression, um, a single dose of psychedelics can sometimes make a big difference. And um, the, the Carhartt-Harris model is that difference might consist in just just temporarily giving you the feeling that your, your, your sort of self-model is not your, your picture of reality and your self-model are not 
set in stone and the way that you feel right now isn't the way that you always have to feel um and that actually can be a very a very powerful effect so it's like i think the model that carhart harris is, has is called rebus relaxed relaxed belief under psychedelics is in there somewhere it's a slightly forced acronym but um but anyway, no, I love that. I think I think that there's just that thought, there, there's a kind of line going back there to our earlier discussion about the self. Yeah, no, I totally. I think that yeah, I mean the psychedelics and you know like in how to change your mind or in um, the illuminated mind and books like that. It's like yeah, the uh, what psychedelics can do is they can take your um, uh, I forget the name of it, but the you might actually know the name. Um, yeah, this this uber self, the kind of central executive, and say, hey, you should just go away for a bit, like kind of chill yourself out, and then we can. It's, it's, it's kind of the way I see it is like it's taking these top down models and saying, hey, maybe do a little bit less of that right now, and just allow the bottom up sensory experience to kind of dictate and it, it to kind of flow within itself, and then after that, as you say, you can kind of say, oh wow these top-down models were just me. I can be something else here. I can create new top-down models of the world and create a new version of self. Um, exactly, yeah. 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 Shaking, yeah like that. Shaking, shaking the snow globe, as somebody else says. Like, I, I forget mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I think, I mean, and let's let's talk about, in the, and we're getting to the end issue of our conversation, so I want to ask a couple of things here. First is on technology, which is, um, uh, yeah, so we have, there's a lot of, overlap between both kind of predictive processing models and stuff like backpropagation and AI. And there's also a lot of overlap in your work with stuff like, you know, extended mind hypothesis and like Google Glass or, you know, Neuralink or things like that. Um, And what do I want to ask here? I guess I want to ask like maybe something like what is the, what do you see as some of these like, I don't know if like the end game or something like that, but like as we go deeper and we have, um, uh, more powerful, either both artificial intelligence or more powerful technologies that can kind of maybe blur the line or kind of queer the line between, um, you know, our minds and the world and how information flows between them. So like, how, how, just how are you thinking about the interaction between technology and digital technology and AI and some of these uh, brain models that we've been talking about? Yeah, well, I, I think that understanding brains as prediction engines should be a guide to how we should build the the kinds of um, the kinds of techno- technologies with which we most naturally merge, if you like, something like that. That um, what we re- what 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 you really need, I think, is technologies that don't require too much attention from the biological brain in order to start to do the right thing at the right time. Because attention is a kind of limited commodity in these uh, in these models. If you it, it appears as a as something called precision, and if you up the precision on one thing, you must down the precision on something else. In fact, so um, what I think we'll be seeing is a, a move towards a lot more kind of um, special purpose wearable technologies, a move away from the kind of general purpose sort of um, iPhone in your pocket kind of thing that does still require rather a lot of attention from the biological brain if it's going to do the right thing at the right time to um, a wide variety of different wearables that really do start to, to if you like, behave much more like, um, much more like part of the package that just is you, so that the biological brain gets to sort of dovetail what it does with what they can do in ways that are, are as intimate as a way that is dovetailed to what your body can, you know, your muscle and tendon systems can do. So that's sort of 
kind of the way that I see it going. Um, that certainly would, 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 would make quite a lot of sense. There's a, of course, there's an interest in other layer in contemporary technology, which is that our technologies are now so busy predicting us. And there we are, busy kind of predicting them. But there are uh, there, there, there's room for kind of um, there's room for ecosystems to emerge that are not exactly in our interests. <laughs> and so, um, so I think there's uh, there's also uh, there, there are ways here to think about some of the dangers that uh, that again will flow will flow from that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, kind of a couple pieces here. One is yeah on that on that final piece popping off the stack. It's like there's a. Yeah, and we can kind of imagine, and I, and I just like this frame of, you know, thinking of the world and ourselves as having these models and constant frames of the world. And then we can start to think about AI having these frames. And this gets into like the racial, you know, biased algorithms and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, you've looked at a bunch of data here and you've generated these frames, these predictive processing models that say, hey, if you're poorer, you're more likely to, um, you're uh, more at risk of recidivism, you know? And so it's like, let's make sure that the poor folks don't get to, um, uh, don't, uh, you know, we keep them in jail for longer, things like that. And so I think that being you know, cognizant of using, I love, you know, using AI and stuff as a mirror rather than a crystal ball, I think is, is pretty powerful. I wonder though, in, in what you're saying about kind of um, biotechnical niches or something like that, where it's like, we have the smartphone, which has um, an ecosystem of apps within it, but yeah, it requires attention of our brain. Um, and so you're thinking about, are there any kind of proto examples that you see of these like things that will not require our attention, but will still quote unquote help us? Um, that's a good question, actually. There surely are. They're not springing to mind now that you asked the question. Um, there are things that, uh, that, of course, I've imagined in various <laughs> uh, in various um, sort of places, like you know something. Well, there is one. Okay, there is one. There's one example that I can think of, which is the um, which is the North Sense, which is a, a little belt that was initially developed where. As the user oriented themselves towards the north, they got a little vibrotactile buzz moving that sort of as they oriented in that direction. Um, and that was later turned by a company called Cyborg Nest into a little implantable, well, sort of rather superficial implant, like a body piercing in effect, that, uh, that would, again, give you the same information as you, as you oriented towards magnetic north. And... Over time, people sort of cease to feel the buzz, but they, 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 they feel as if they have kind of a new sort of way of inhabiting their world where, for example, uh, they automatically seem to know sort of the direction of their children's, um, the gate to their children's school, and they can get a kind of emotionally good feeling by orienting themselves in that direct direction no matter where they are at the right time. I assume they're in the same hemisphere, at least, but uh, at the right time. So, you know, little little things like that that are very special purpose, I think, um, and that sort of deliver a stream of information that can go maybe um, a little bit sort of below the level of a, a normal conscious threshold. That could be very useful, and you can imagine that being done for anything. I could get a little vibrotactile buzz whenever I encounter you know, some somebody that uh, that is uh, you know a fan of the same hockey team as me, or, uh, because after all, that wouldn't be hard to do with a bit of face recognition or a bit of kind of social media stuff. Easy enough to get that information back and give me that buzz. So yeah. things like that, I think, could uh, could 
rather easily be imagined which which ones would be most useful rather than just kind of slightly fun little bits of decoration that's kind of hard to say um, totally yeah i like that i think that there's a, and i think that that's a good example it's kind of a funny it reminds me a bit of like you know like uh muslims pointing towards mecca and praying towards mecca and that being like a good shared um kind of thing that you can do no matter where you are in the world you have this like good kind of uh, anchor that you can come to um so i guess in our final so thank you for that and i'll be curious we'll both be curious to see what kinds of new uh informational you know subconscious layers of information streams start to input into our bodies all the time and and uh, hopefully they are good and we will make them good for us um maybe two final questions here one is is there a place just like a recommendation for listeners is there like a where do you find yourself like uh, like are there any you know good good where where do like the great neurophilosophers like hang out or is there like a um are you do you have like a twitter thread that you like or is there kind of a, a newsletter or something or or you know any recommendations for people who want to do similar stuff as you that's a yeah you know i don't really um it's probably because i don't seem to hang out wherever they do so, you know, I run into other neurophilosophers and other people working on these kinds of things on, you know, Twitter streams and various online conferences and all kinds of places. But it's not like there seems to be any one place where I would typically go and, and look for things like that, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, there are places like the Brains blog, which is a, a, a nice sort of, um, that's a place where you can get quite a lot of good um, good sort of, cognitive philosophy um stuff appear in um if someone's got a new book out in that area they'll normally turn up on the brains blog doing a few quick praises of it and interacting with a crowd of people so that's cool um and, and there are other places like that i'm sure but um that's no a great example though. Mind as a kind of a nowhere springs to mind as a sort of a, the absolute sort of opium den of uh, neurophilosophy <laughs> that's funny um a place where you go every day and you just sit and do neurophilosophy that's funny um and then maybe one kind of funny question here about like um yeah do you think that um an overrated and underrated do you think that uh and i'll just ask you like whether you think it's overrated or underrated and you can tell me the answer do you think that google glass is overrated or underrated yeah, this is sort of slight left, slight right, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think Google Glass is underrated uh, because it's a wonderful piece of technology, a little bit clunky in its sort of um, original incarnations. Um, huge take-up in industry where it's kind of used for um, stuff like uh, people working. Imagine you're working on a wiring loom in a, an aircraft cockpit really, really complex wiring loops. You don't want to be consulting a manual. You want that information to be available to you while you've got both your hands free. Um, for the rest of us, imagine if your sort of IKEA flat packs came with a, a kind of a, a kind of Google Glass way of, um, of assembling the, the, the flat packed item that has arrived. So, so I think the only thing that held Google Glass back really was uh, the fact that we're all a bit worried about being um, under surveillance when we don't want to be and every time you saw someone wearing that you thought oh i wonder if they're filming me what are they doing you know so so i think it's a technology that just needs a few more iterations um i don't know what the first wristwatches looked like or whether they were huge clunky nasty things that scared some people away but if they were 
the bit like it's, that. It's like that, totally. Um, yeah, beautiful. I think, and then as a final question here, Andy, is there any place, again, for listeners, you know, definitely check out Andy's, you know, work on embodied cognition and, and his recent book, Surfing Uncertainty, around this stuff on predictive processing. Is there any other, like, plugs you want to give to folks, either places to find you on the internet or any final things for our listeners? Oh, um, something I would plug. Um University of Sussex, where I'm currently working, has a new program just starting in biomimetic embodied artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, that's, uh, I think that's going to be a very exciting program. It's the first one of exactly that kind that I know of. Um, certainly, uh, it's a call of it, it's basically based around a doctoral training program right now, but there'll be a lot of other things going on too. Um, so maybe look out for that. Um, yeah. Biomimetic artificial intelligence. Beautiful. I'll, I'll 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 put that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you again for for chatting today, Andy. It was it was great, and uh, thanks for listening, listeners, and goodbye, everybody. Thanks, everyone. That was great. Thanks for chatting.